This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. What's going on, everyone? And welcome to episode 228 of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. In this episode, we have Riley Oikel a real estate investor based out of Toronto. In this episode, Riley will be teaching us how to create strategic partnerships with private investors so that we can invest in real estate with none of our own money. If you guys enjoy this podcast, do me a quick favor and leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. The more reviews that we get, the more the show will grow, which will help us do more cool stuff. The real estate market is still incredibly hot. So if you're looking for a hard money loan for your fix and flip projects, or if you're looking for a 30-year fixed loan for rental properties with rates as low as 4%, you can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Let me know that you're a podcast listener, and I'll give you a discount on our processing fees. And now, on to the show. All right, Riley, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. All right. Yeah, my name is Riley. Basically, I am uh, currently living in Toronto, Toronto, Canada here. Yeah, I guess in terms of what I do, I'm, I'm a real estate investor full-time. And I actually uh, do some coaching on the side as well and help people to buy uh, their investment properties. And I have my, my own active investment business where I'm building my portfolio and uh, really enjoy uh, doing all of that. Awesome. So Riley, why don't you give us some background information? Um, how did you get into real estate? What kind of investing are you doing? Certainly, yeah. Um, so the, the kind of transitional point for me was, um, uh, you know, I ran a whole maintenance business when I was, uh, you know, late, late teens, early 20s. And the, the business went quite well. So I hired in a bunch of students and that, that was, uh, you know, really fulfilling it was my, my first foot in the door when it comes to being a business owner. And then there came a point where I wanted to get into like a larger business. Um, I was like cleaning windows and emptying eaves and it was, it was, you know, um, definitely not the dream by any means, but it was, it was fun. You know, I, I learned a good amount and then I actually transitioned into wanting to run a re- renewable energy business. So, uh, at the time I wanted to run a geothermal company and I needed this like hydraulic drill to be able to do that. And it actually ended up being like $1.5 million, which was more money than you could imagine I had at the age of 22. Um, so with that being said, the banks, you know, when I went into the banks to get a loan, because naturally that's what you do when you don't have the money, um, they had mentioned that you needed assets, you needed to, to own assets to have some collateral for them to be able to give me a loan. Um, so I told them at the time, you know, I have a vehicle that must count as an asset and the vehicle cost $2,500. So you can imagine how big of a loan one could get for $2,500 of, of assets. So I really went down the path right then and there to learning more about just what are assets? Like how, how do they, where do they hang out? How do I get them? Um, and and that really led me on the path of real estate investing. Um, and ever since I've been uh, investing now and um, actively just buying, buying properties. You want to tell us about some of your first investments that you did and how you financed them? Because at the time, like, do you still have that business? Like, how did you get loans when you didn't have a full-time job, et cetera? Yeah, I'm not going to lie at the beginning. Like, it was a lot of, edu- um, you know, a lot of educating, um, watching YouTube videos, listening to podcasts like this, reading books. And, uh, and I, you know, after two, two and a half years, I finally mustered up the courage because I have a very low risk tolerance, I, I found, to buy my first one. And the way that I actually bought that property was because I didn't even have mortgage capability. Um, I, I found someone that did have, a mortgage capability. They had a mortgage with the bank ready to, to deploy. And I had the down payment ready. So we had partnered together and went in and actually bought that first property together. So it was a single family property. Um, it was in Sarnia, Ontario. So just like a, a small, smaller um, city there just outside of Toronto. 
and bought the property. It was like a, a three bedroom, uh, rented it. And it was just such a cool feeling to get like rent coming in for the first month there. Like that first rent check was just incredible. Um, and I kind of got addicted to the idea of like going in and renovating units too and making them look great. So that's what I did with the second property was we started to find properties that were distressed. They needed some love and go in there and actually renovate them and make them look great and, uh, and attract awesome tenants. And yeah, it's been a blast doing that. The transformation I think is what I really do enjoy the most. That's really cool. Like, can you go into like how you found a friend who is willing to kind of do a mortgage? Like they're putting their name down, right? You're coming with the cash, but they're the ones who have guaranteed the loan. How did you make that partnership happen? Especially if it's your first time, like, you know, buying a property. It was connecting with a lot of people. I remember just networking uh, quite a bit. Like it was, you know, um, when I would, I would go to meetups and events because there's a lot usually with like real estate investors, a lot of meetups and a lot of events. And I, I'd, I'd gone in there and I just, I remember shaking hands with pretty much anyone that I could and just kind of introducing myself, not ever with the intention or the agenda of wanting to partner with people, but just plain and simply because I wanted to introduce myself and get to know who they were. And then, uh, you know, as time went on, like more and more people were, were saying, yeah, like, you know, you seem like a great guy. Like, you know, what's the next step for you? What are you looking for? And I'm like, well, man, I want to buy my first one and I have this money, but I don't have a mortgage. And they're like, you know, and as time went on again, like someone put them, put themselves out there and they were like, well, Hey, I'm actually looking to buy a property. I do have a mortgage, want to partner together and let's buy a property. So I, I had met with someone there and we kind of interviewed each other uh, ongoingly for about three meetings. And it was a great, great match, right? It was complimentary. He was looking for what I, I was pr- able to provide. And I do all the property management for that, for that property. And then he does all of the, the financial management for it. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that you were going to meet for like two years, right? Before you actually did your first deal. Well, yeah. Uh, two years of just educating myself, you know, yeah. two years of like, you know, trying to, trying to do it all for free, to be honest. I wish I would have paid for a mentor back then, but uh, the hindsight's 2020. I feel like we're in a similar situation. Like I started getting to real estate investing, maybe late 2015, early 2016. I used to live in Los Angeles. Then I moved to the Bay area. And then when I moved up to the Bay area, I was like, okay, I want to get into real estate investing. And for that first year, it was rough. Like I try to go as many meetups as possible too. But in the very beginning, when you don't have any investments, you can go like, Hey, like I'm an aspiring investor. And they're like, all right, that's cool. And they don't talk to you that much. They kind of move on to the next person. Um, so it's cool that you were able to like network and eventually have someone who qualified for a mortgage to partner with you and buy your first deal. Um, how did you like acquire that first deal? What are some of the numbers attached to it? And like, do you still have that one today? So uh, actually someone else that I had met was just finishing a flip. So, so someone there, there that I had known, um, it was finishing a flip and we, we just went in and we bought that, that property that was like just finishing the flip. So it was freshly renovated. Um, so we bought the property. Um, we, we split it all 50, 50. So he's getting 50% of the cash flow and the equity. And then I get 50% as well. The numbers, like the numbers aren't phenomenal to be honest. Um, it's probably going to be the worst property in my portfolio, uh, right now as it sits, but, um, I'm keeping it for, for kind of old time's sake, you know, it's the, it's the first one. So how long ago did you buy that property? Um, uh, yeah, it would have been over, over four years ago now. Yeah. Over four years ago. It's around the same time frame. We bought properties around the same yeah. time frame. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like I would say cash flow wise, like it's probably bringing in, uh, I think it's $800 a month for a single family, which isn't bad. So we're splitting that. So he's getting 400, I'm getting four. Yeah, we still have it and we're looking to refinance it and then I'll, I'll be able to get my money that I put in there years ago. So it's 800 after paying for like the mortgage and all the expenses and all that stuff? That'd be everything, yeah. So that's after wow. everything's paid down. How, how much, how expensive was that property? Uh, we bought it for 240,000. 
Wow. What's the gross rents on it? Gross rents were getting 1700 Okay. Not bad. Yeah. And so since then, um, like how many other deals have you done? Are you continuing the strategy where you're getting someone else to put the loan on it and then you know, you're paying for the down payment or what are you doing now? Yeah. So I, I've definitely made a transition since that first one into um, becoming more of the expert, like really understanding how the business works, systematizing everything um, and having a team behind me to back me up. And so because of that, like I'm just purely being the active partner now is what they call it. So I'll be able to go and find the off-market properties that are discounted, need some, need some love, uh, manage the entire renovation, manage the entire property management process, do all the financial management as well. So during that entire process, I'm, I'm kind of putting in a lot of my my blood, sweat, and tears, so to say. Um, and then the person that I do work with, they end up just contributing the, the money and the mortgage, and, and they're completely passive. So they're they're kind of the passive partner there, and and they get an ROI on their money every month. Yeah. So are you mostly focusing on just places local to you, or are you kind of spread out, uh, you know, across the uh, the country and maybe even in the U.S. Yeah, it you know it's it's a bit all over the place right now. Um, we understand the markets quite well in southwestern Ontario, um, here in Canada, and and there are certain cities in particular that will buy kind of the multifamily properties in, and then as well like we're we're focused on Airbnbs um, in, in more like cottage countries. So there's a, a few um, few areas there in Texas that we're looking at as well in America. Um, you know we're kind of dipping into Belize a bit too, like just researching, understanding the the market there in Belize, and then we we do actively have a few. Airbnbs up here in uh, in Canada, so it'd be in like the Corthos, um, the Cortho Lakes. It's just like two hours away from Toronto. Hmm. You know, I've never invested out of the country, so I don't know like what regulations are in Canada or in Belize. But since you invest in both, you know, Canada and the U.S., do you know any differences between investing in these two different markets? It, yeah, as of right now, like when it comes to like investing in America, like the biggest change or difference for us we're finding is the lingo. It's just completely the jargon that uh, that investors throw around. It is different, um, you know, and interest rates are a bit different right now. Interest rates in Canada came down quite a bit. So we're around like 1.5 to 2.5. Well, uh, it's very low. Yeah. <laughs> and we have a five-year term as well on like all of our mortgages. Uh, a 25-year amortization is what we call it. Um, whereas in America, you know, you have a 30-year um, kind of term from my understanding. And, and your interest is like a bit higher, 3.5, 4 percent or so. So just to clarify that you're saying it's a 25 AM mortgage, which means that if you were to pay it, you know, you would have paid off your entire loan over 25 years. But what was that first part? You said five years. So is it like a five year loan that balloons in five years or how does that work? Yeah. So you're, you're like, we actually have this, this saying, or um, kind of like this, this piece here in like any mortgage, it's called a term. So, you know, you could do a one year term, a three year or five year term. And that just basically means that you're kind of fixed in there for that, for that duration at that interest period. And after your term is over, then you can renew your mortgage. So you can, you know, depending on what the interest rates are, you can kind of renew it. If it's a bit lower, you can lower your interest. Um, so that's kind of what that term is. The amortization is essentially like, you know, you have the principal, you have the interest, and then there's the inverse. As time goes on, as time goes on, you know, you're basically paying less and less interest and you're getting more and more principal. So equity in the property. Um, whereas like uh, I've heard in America, if you, you know, in a few states at least, there's like a balloon payment. Um, is that correct? Like you guys have the... Uh, I mean, so it like, depends on what kind of loan you get. Typically for like the 30-year fixed loan, it is 30 years fixed all the way through. Okay. Um, I mean, you were mentioning, right, this like five-year term. Does that mean that after five years, you kind of owe the, the balance or does the bank automatically renew you? No, it basically means that you could exit your mortgage after that term period. So you could exit. You'd obviously have to pay it off if you're exiting it or you could switch to like a different mortgage lender. Um, it's almost like an agreement like... A, 
think of it as like a lease, you know, so you're going to sign a lease with a tenant. And after the one year, then you can decide whether you want to go month to month or if, if they're going to move on. So it's yeah. kind of similar here with like uh, the terms of the. Yeah. So I guess in our case, the same as the balloon payments where like if, if it's a five year or 25 am mortgage, it's supposed to be pay off on 25 year schedule, but right. sometimes like a five year term. So after the year five, you have a balloon payment. So that's what you need to refinance and continue your mortgage. But anyway, we're getting too much in the weeds in that. Um, now, again, how many properties do you think you've done uh, since that time period? Like, where are you now and what are you focusing on? Yep. So we've done we've done over a dozen now. Um, and it's it's kind of a mix between uh, multifamily. So two to four unit buildings and then uh, and then Airbnb projects, too. And so like what makes Airbnb more attractive than standalone ter- tenants? Yeah, it's interesting. I had looked at buying like commercial multifamily. So that's over five units here in Canada. And when you're looking at analyzing uh, commercial multifamilies, it's about, uh, you know, about $1,000 a month for cash flow is what you're expecting for every million dollars that you're buying in like an apartment building. So if you were to buy a $4 million apartment building, that's $4,000 a month that you'd be expecting in cash flow. So if we're looking at it from a cash flow perspective, Airbnbs are like the hack. It's like the way that you can break the system with like the amount of cash flow you can get bring, coming in. So like the last Airbnb we have, it's around four to $5,000 a month consistently on average for cash flow, And that was a $500,000 purchase. So we're kind of comparing this half million dollar property with a $4 million apartment building with like, you know, just a ton of tenants, like probably 30 to 50 tenants in this $4 million building. Whereas like the Airbnb can be managed quite passively. So if we're looking at it from a cash flow perspective, that's what's very attractive is their cash cows. They generate a ton of cash flow. Um, Though, uh, of course, if you're getting 2% appreciation a year, you'd way rather get 2% appreciation on 4 million bucks than on a half a million dollars. So it's not as advantageous when it comes to equity and appreciation, but certainly for cash flow. Do you have any challenges financing a property for Airbnb purposes? Because I know some lenders sometimes they're like, no, we don't want you to short-term rental this thing. Uh, well, you know, um, sometimes we just finance it for the long-term rental purposes or even for owner-occupied. Um you know, our, our, our mind can change, you know, and it, it tends to once in a while. So, you know, at the beginning, it's usually long-term or it's for our own purpose. And then it could change later on. Makes sense. I mean, I had a guest earlier today, actually, who does very similar things where he rents it out room by room to kind of growth hack and, you know, make more money uh, for each property, especially considering that it's like so expensive to buy properties over there. So how much does it cost usually to like set up an Airbnb? Yeah, I can go off the last one just as an example. So uh, again, we bought it for, it was like 520,000 all in. And then basically for the renovation, and we did 5% down actually for that one. So it was owner occupied. Um, so the down payment was maybe 25,000, 5,000 for closing costs. So 30,000, the renovation was $50,000. So now we're up to like 75,000 or so, or 80,000. Um, furnishings as well. Furnishings usually run, uh, it was a six bedroom actually. So we, we did a great job of kind of getting things inexpensive. We didn't buy from um, kind of premium stores we just bought from secondhand places, uh, but it still looks great. And we ended up furnishing it for $10,000, a six bedroom place, but nine beds is what we have in it. So yeah, uh, like we're, we're, we're under a hundred thousand dollars for that, for that investment. So in one year, like if we bring in $40,000 of cash flow, that's a 40% cash on cash ROI. So we're pretty happy with that. Yeah. And right. do you have any long-term tenants or are they all like Airbnbs at this point? Uh, no. So my multifamily properties, the two, three and four unit buildings that I own, um, those are all long-term tenants. And then any single families that we have are uh, short-term tenants now. 
Got it. And you said you're still like self-managing at this point, right? Or do you have professional management? Uh, I have a hosting company that does everything for the Airbnbs. The only thing that we, we kind of keep in host because we, we don't think anyone can kind of do it as well as we do is the price optimization. That's like the art when it comes to Airbnb. Um, whereas like a long-term tenant, you just kind of find a tenant and it's 1200 bucks a month, for example, and you just set it and forget it. And uh, whereas like for an Airbnb, you have 200 guests potentially a year coming in. So there's a lot more work to be done with the pricing and making sure that you're kind of able to get the top top price uh, based on uh, what's available in the area, based on just a ton of stuff, you know, based on if it's a holiday, it's a long weekend, um, how many, how far out, you know, they're booking. So there, there's a whole lot to know around the price optimization. That's the only thing that we still do keep, keep kind of close to our chest. Yeah. I mean, I was running an Airbnb last year and it wasn't as nice as I thought it would be just because like you said, there's so much turn and I tried the room by room model. Um, and like every night you'd have new guests come in um, a lot of uh, the cleaners basically go to the house every single day to clean up one room or the common areas. Um, it's a lot to manage. So like, what, what are you paying your, your current hosting company? Yeah, we pay them actually 18% of the, yeah. of the income there. That's typical. I mean, I was paying 20%. Um, again, I think it's way worth it because you're making way, you're always making double the amount that you would have made if you just rented out normally. So it makes sense to, you know, pay them accordingly. Yeah. Um, now, Here's one thing too, like Airbnbs were a great strategy. I had a lot of guests on the podcast here who talked about Airbnbs and even Airbnb arbitrage. Um, yours is a little bit different because you guys actually own the property. You're not doing the whole like arbitrage model and you have long-term debt on this. So you're okay. But like how did COVID affect your Airbnbs and your business models? Yeah, it's been incredible, <laughs> but it, it, it has been awesome. Um, like here's a perfect example in Ontario. You can't leave the province. Like you haven't been able to leave now in, in weeks. So it, for anyone that wants to kind of get out and, and spend their money that they usually spent on their vacation, you know, their two or three vacations a, a year in Toronto, um, those people need to have an outlet. They need to have, like, they want to have a space to go and enjoy outside with their family. And they want to have activities as well that they can do. So the, the cool thing here is like, you know, the, the amount of money that they kind of saved up for the vacation, they're kind of dumping into this really great Airbnb. And there's only so many Airbnbs available that can kind of, you know, house like 10 people, for example. So that, that's kind of the, the market that we're focused on is Airbnbs that there's lots to do. So we have a hot tub, we have a sauna, it's by the lake, you know, there's kayaks, there's, there's, um, you know, different games to play, whatever. Um, so that, there's a, there's a campfire. So that, that's like a main, that was a main amenity that we were looking for when we bought the property was just activities for, for people to do, cause they want to do things right now. And there's really not a whole lot to do with COVID. So, you know, that's really what's attracting them up there to go and enjoy the cottage. And, and again, there's just very few cottages available that can kind of house 10 people. And that's again, why we kind of focused on buying Airbnbs only with four to six bedrooms, because now we're also able to kind of um, take in a whole group of people that we probably wouldn't have been able to take in if we had a one bedroom. You know, if you have a one bedroom, you can usually only house one or two people. If you have a two bedroom, maybe it's, you know, two to four. Um, but there comes a point where like, you know, you have six bedrooms, you can now house everyone up until 10 people. So you can house, you know, the, the people that you could have probably have housed at the one bedroom mark and that two bedrooms, three and four. So the buyer's pool is much, much larger. Um, and that's what we enjoy right now about that property is you know it's it's perfect there's lots to do and it's attracting lots of people up there during covid yeah and let's be real uh, during the most popular seasons you're probably having like 20 people being shoved in this house because they all want to party together uh, let's see we did that for our skate trips back in the day 
And it's funny because I remember like when people were getting into the whole Airbnb craze, they specifically wanted like the smaller units actually, because they wanted to be more catered to like the, the executive suite, people who were flying into town for maybe a month or two for business travel. Mm-hmm. And instead of paying like 500 bucks a night at a hotel, now you can get this beautiful Airbnb, this whole home for like 300 bucks a night. Well, oh yeah. And then like, they're like, oh, with leisure, when there's a recession, typically people cut leisure first. They don't want to go on vacations anymore. They want to stay home, but they have to work, right? And here is COVID where it killed the entire workforce, the traveling workforce at least. And then everyone's wanting to go on vacation like crazy. Like me, like we just came back from Vegas. We were there for a whole week. It was amazing. Like it was our first vacation in a whole year. And we're so happy to get out. I feel so bad for you guys who are stuck in your province. You can't leave. So it makes sense that they want to go out and like enjoy themselves. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely been uh been boring. I think that's the one word. Just boring, you know. But but you know, yeah, like I, I think you had a great point there. It's just a matter of focusing on things that you you do enjoy. Like there's still lots to do, and and keeping your mind busy, you know, and productive is also mm-hmm. very important right now too. And I think there's gonna be a lot of new businesses that will be sparked, you know, during everything here. Exactly. So it's a good time to buckle down and get to work. Like you got nothing else to do, but be productive. So why don't you tell me about your other projects? Like, like, what are you doing now? How are you getting new investors to like partner with you? And are you still doing the same structure where like, like they're coming up with the money and also the funding? Like how, how are you doing that whole thing together for, for JB projects? Yeah, we, we've stayed pretty consistent since um, the beginning, besides my very first one. And and the whole structure has, has certainly been finding people that you know, they have this mortgage capability, they have some money, and they just don't know how to really deploy it effectively, the most effective way into the market, and and partnering with those people to help them do that and, and working with them. So uh, that's still what we do today. And it's just a mixture of like, who's looking to do what, like, we're, we're again, quite active there in America, looking around, like keeping our finger on the pulse with different markets and different states, and, uh, and wanting to partner with people there too. So here in, in Canada, and in kind of the Corthas, uh, you know, just the two hours away from Ontario, we're going to do the same thing. We're just partnering with people. Um, so are they yeah, coming up with the entire funds, like the down payment and the, and the loan? Yeah. So, so it, it's simply the, the down payment, the closing costs, and then the renovation cost. Yeah. And if we're doing an Airbnb, there's furnishing costs as well. But they're also the one qualifying for the loan as well, right? Yeah. It's not like you guys are qualifying the loan. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you break down kind of like a typical JV structure and how we look at it, and this is the most common way to look at it, you have four M's to joint venturing. So one is money. So the money is the down payment, closing costs, renovation, and the furnishings. That's 25% equity or stake in the property. And then the next M would be the mortgage. So as long as they can qualify for a good mortgage, that's kind of an average mortgage. That's another 25% equity in the property. And then you have the next one that's management. So that's the renovation management, property management, and financial management. Um, for, for someone that does all of that, there's obviously a lot of work to be done. That's 25% equity or stake in the property. And then last one would be finding the off-market deal. So finding like a good discounted property that's distressed, analyzing it, making sure it fits the criteria. That's another 25% equity. So mm, anyone who's contributing, what we might do is 75, 25% split, you know, for example, but uh, most commonly we're doing 50, 50 splits. Okay. Very cool. Have you had any like issues with your partners or do you have any tips on uh, partnering in general? Um, yeah, I've had, I've had a few issues, not nothing like severe, um, but like a a few minor issues at the very beginning, my expectations weren't as dialed in. I feel like, you know, now I'm really coming from the space of under promising and over delivering as much as I can. And at the beginning, like, you know, I I wasn't able to set perfect expectations with them. I set pretty good ones, but there were little variables like, 
you know, now I'm telling my joint venture partners, Hey, like here are all the factors that could happen. And, and here's how we could like, you know, have the property kind of lose money. Um, on the one property, I actually had, uh, the ice and water shield. It's under the shingles. I don't know if you guys have that. If you're in California, the sunshine 365 days out of the year, what's ice we talking about? <laughs> I wish. Yeah. So we, we, uh, we actually have like these ice and water shields. It's like a waterproofing membrane that goes under the shingles because in the winter time, if the, if the roof's actually more flat, the ice will just dam there and then soak the shingles and it will flood the entire home. We bought a property that actually didn't have that water shield and there's no way you can tell during the home inspection. So it kind of left high and dry. And so we had to rip off all the shingles, rip off all the uh, the plywood there and then do all the inside. Like the inside was soaked. It looked like a wet cave. And luckily, like the owners had actually sold it like at a perfect time in the summer. So we had no idea that this was an issue until the winter. Um, long story short, insurance did cover a good amount. But the, the couple that I was working with actually lived in the unit. So um, they were living in the main floor unit at the time. So they were living in all this, this craziness. So obviously that was an expectation where I'm like, hey, like things can happen. And then you can only predict for so much too. So bear that in mind. But I haven't gone through that now. It's definitely a topic I do bring up with my partners that I don't know when I'm buying the property, what's in between walls, or there's something wrong with the foundation, or if there's an ice and water shield. There are certain factors that I just don't know of. And this could be a lemon property. And I'd have no idea. Like there's just really no way to tell unless we're going to rip open the drywall and look behind it. And usually don't do that during the walkthrough. It's not usually feasible. Two things, man. Like, how did it survive the last winter, right? Like, why didn't it flood last winter? Why did it flood this winter? Um, and then two, I'm surprised you allowed your partners to live in the property that you guys are invested in. Typically, you're supposed to, like, distance it, right? Like, it's not supposed to be a place where you have an owner-occupier living in it. Yeah. No, great questions. So, it, I'm not sure. I really don't know. The roof had actually been in, um, installed, like, two years prior to. So, I'm not sure how that affected them or what they had done if they had put buckets all around. Like it was basically like two major walls in the main floor were just ruined. And then the ceiling in one area was ruined as well from the flood. Um, and then it's crazy because as soon as we ripped up the shingles too, like there's massive holes in the burn board. It's, it's like, that's what they used to use be- before plywood to to nail down the shingles. There's huge holes in it too. So I, I have no idea. They did it out of negligence when they just put in, put down shingles right on top of the, these massive holes in the burn boards. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it was surprising and that's usually... That's again, why I was like pretty confident in buying the property. Cause I'm like, there's no way, like there's no noticeable water damage, um, during the walkthrough. So, um, I didn't suspect anything, but they might've just painted that right before they put it on the market. Got it. And then what are your thoughts about letting like your investor partners live in the same property? You guys are never doing it again. Yeah. Not going to be a thing. <laughs> um, it, it, yeah, I think it was just like a conditional thing. It was going to be two years, you know, they were just going to be in there for two years, move out. And, and we, we do five year agreements. So we're going to work with you for five years. Um, I, I just don't think that that makes a whole lot of sense in hindsight, um, just for a, a few different factors. The number one being, you know, then they kind of feel obligated to do a lot of the maintenance around the property, having, you know, being the owners. And then the tenants also know that they're the owners they are there. So they're always getting knocked on, you know, so the tenants, if they have a question, they go to the main floor unit that actually owns the building versus the property manager being the people that I oversee. Um, so I think that that was an issue because it was just a bother and it really bothered them naturally. Um, so I just don't think that the owner living in the building is, is overly helpful sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And how do you even find people who want to partner with you in the first place? Yeah. So, so I, I think I've done more of the same. It's definitely been a lot of connecting with people, you know, putting my message out there. And if, if someone kind of, 
um, you know, enjoys the message, enjoys kind of who I am, then I just naturally connect with them. And sometimes it's YouTube videos or even podcasts as well. And um, outside of that, it's, you know, friends, family, people that are, have kind of been um, keeping their, their finger on the pulse with what I've been doing. And, and you know, yeah. So, so that's kind of what I do there with joint ventures, you know, like no paid ads or anything. Yeah. Yeah. So like between my girlfriend and I, like we have like content, right? We have this podcast, YouTube channels. She has like a hundred thousand people who follow her on Instagram and 300,000 on TikTok. So she's pretty big now. And people are always asking to partner with us on deals. But for me, I'm like, I don't know you. Like, I don't want to partner with you. Like, no, no, no offense. Right. You might be a weird person, but like, there's just too much um, like mental stress. Like for us, if we want to do something, we just do it. I don't care what other people think. Whereas now, like, I think you have to have some kind of consensus uh, when you do something. Like, how do you kind of navigate through that field? Like, do you like screen people before you bring taking their money, or like, how, how does the whole process work for you? Oh yeah, no, certainly. But you you really have to think about this as like almost a marriage. Like you're you're going to be tied to this agreement with them. That's a 25 year agreement technically. If it's a 25 year amortization, right? So you have to take it very serious. This is not just like a a weekend like thing where you guys are just going to do a little bit business venture. Like it's a very serious obligation. So you need to screen them and make sure that it's complimentary and that you're able to provide exactly what they're looking for and vice versa. Um, and, and number one, I think it's just likability. It's like, first you need to know them, you know? So, so first we're going to have a meeting just to get to know each other a bit more over an hour. You know, sometimes I even do that like before COVID, of course, in a coffee shop or like take them up for lunch and just get to know each other. So get to know them. And then you, you get to, to like them. So know them, like them. Um, if you feel like, Hey, their values aren't aligned with yours. Um, they're not looking to do things illegally or play in the gray area all the time. And they're looking to kind of be a straight shooter. Then that's kind of what I, I like to do for sure is just uh, have everything above table. Um, and, and also just making sure that, you know, the morals are in alignment with yours and that, that their goals are also in alignment, like making sure that they have the same cash flow goals or uh, return on their investment goals for the next year. Um, that's usually kind of meeting number two is like to get to kind of like them and make sure that we're in alignment. And then ultimately it's going to be over the course of maybe the next meeting or two that, that through uh, talking, going over the numbers again, and just kind of understanding um, what they're looking for, what I'm looking for, for the criteria of the property, we'll make a JV letter of intent. And it's usually after we sign that, that I understand that I trust them and they trust me. And that's where we're going to start looking for property. So it's over the course of at least three, if not four meetings of a half an hour to an hour each. That, uh, that we spend together, you know, this is not like just a 10, 15 minute conversation and like, oh, you have money, you have a mortgage, well, let's go buy something for you. Like we, we really want to do our due diligence and, and screen through people to make sure we're, we're just picking the right people to partner with. How many investors do you have at this moment? And like, do you use the same people on multiple deals or is it usually just like one-to-one? Yeah, at any given moment, we kind of have a pool of people. So we kind of break them down into different categories. So uh, people that are kind of pre-approved and looking for 200 to maybe 400,000 or 400 to, to 800,000, you know, a million plus sort of thing. Um, and, and then as well, like just their, their money or the type of strategy that they want to use. Typically, we do the Burr strategy, but then some people are fine with turnkey and, and we're totally fine with turnkey properties as well. So if they're looking to do the renovation and supply the renovation costs, then that's going to go into a different pool. So depending on the properties that we're finding and what they look like, we'll look at, you know, um, the types of strategies that are going to be needed, the amount of initial investment that's needed. And we'll just match that and marry them with the right person. That's kind of like ready in, in queue to, to do a joint venture with us. So that's mm -hmm. how we, how we look at that. What would you say is kind of like their average expectation? Do they look at like IRR or expected return? Like what's kind of their. Yeah, we have, we have two main KPIs that we'll look for. So metrics, 
the number one would be the total return on investment. So that's after your equity ROI, your appreciation ROI, and your cash on cash ROI. So you add all three of those together. The total ROI is around 25%. So that's like the bare minimum for any property that we're going to bring into our portfolio. Because you have to think as well, like that's 25% total ROI on the initial investment. So for the investor, if they're contributing all, all of the money there, then they're really getting half of that. So they're getting a 12.5% total ROI, which, which is really good, by the way. But we want to get them at least that, right? And then we naturally get, well, I guess 12.5%. But, you know, uh, to an extent, we're not contributing money. We're contributing our time, which is also money to, you know, um, of course. All right. So, so that's the one metric. The second one is cash on cash ROI. So we look for at least 10% cash on cash. And, and that's just simply calculated by taking the amount of initial investment. And, and um, you also find the amount of cash flow, annual cash flow. So take, take annual cash flow and divide it by the initial investment. So that'll give you the cash and cash ROI. Mm-hmm. And then like, I remember you say most of the people who come to you is because they probably don't want to put in the effort or they don't know where to start, right? So do you, like, is there a plan to continue doing this or is it kind of like they JV with you for the first one and they go off and do it on their own or like what's your, what's the situation there? I find a lot of the people that end up partnering with us understand that doing this on their own is going to be 10 times more challenging. Naturally, I think they they believe that their money and their mortgage is like worth 90% equity in the property because like, you know, money is everything, of course, and the mortgage is debt. So it's like those both actually weigh a lot. And having never done it before, most of the time, like these investors that partner with us, they don't really realize the pain or, or the amount of time that goes into a renovation. And the and the property management and dealing with phone calls at 2 a.m. from your tenants and all, all that kind of behind the scenes um, active work. And of course, this is five years of active work, not just like a few months. So, and it could be more, it could be 10 years. So I think naturally they, they believe it should be split 90-10. And then slowly through these conversations as well, and we show them the back end, we show them our systems, like the, the scales start to be tipped more and more. Now, you know, after maybe the, the second meeting, they're like, okay, well, maybe you deserve 20% and I deserve 80 and then by maybe the third meeting, they're like, okay, like I, I do see how you get maybe 50% and I get 50. And then if we have another meeting or another couple meetings and after the business is set up and running, I actually find that they're like, oh my God, like this is awesome. You deserve 80% and I deserve 20. <laughs> and, and that's kind of the gist. So they're naturally attracted to go and do the second property, the third, the fourth. Um, and, we, and through the burst strategy as well, we can refinance and take their money and recycle it into the next, into the second property or into the third. And just reuse that uh, down payment and renovation cost over and over again. So what else do you have going for you besides you know, investing and whatnot? Do you have other businesses that you're running? Yeah, so we, we have the um, investment business. So uh, I have my own investment business and then I actually have a, a business partner. So uh, my business partner's name is James and we actually own a company called BNB Capital. So we we actively are buying Airbnb properties and managing them. And so so we work together to do that. He actually wrote Airbnb for Dummies. Um, and, uh, and so he knows, he, he definitely knows his way around the Airbnb space. Like he actually wrote like the four dummies, the brand. Yeah. yeah oh, by wow. Wiley. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Awesome. So, so James Fedek and, uh, just showed up, showed up for James, shameless, shameless plug for him. Um, so we're, we're running Airbnb or the, uh, the BNB capital company. And then we also do coaching as well to help people to invest into their first Airbnb project. So if they ever want to if they had ever wanted to actually start up their own Airbnb and not do arbitrage, but actually own it, um, then that's something that we actually help them with too and coach them with. And then um, on the side, I also have my own little coaching business and I help around 50 to 100 people a year to buy the, their first investment property. It's usually a two to four unit building. 
using j- j- joint venturing and brewing uh, as strategies there. And uh, within the six months of me working with them, we get them from zero to one. That's the goal um, for them to buy their very first property by the end of six months. So it's like a live or like a Zoom call version coaching program. Like how does it work? Yeah. So they actually log into a backend portal and there's uh, about 50 hours worth of content and 30 hours worth of homework and assignments to complete. So they're going to go through all that. And then uh, twice a week, we actually have calls with them. So I, I'd have a phone call with them. Um, on, well, it's actually a Zoom call. And uh, and that's for a half an hour, twice a week. And then basically, we're just touching base, going over any questions that they have as they're consuming the content. And by the very end of the program, uh, the goal is, again, for them to buy their very first one. Nice. Uh, from your calls with all these you know, clients and students, what would you say is like the biggest challenge that they have? Yeah, it, I think the most common limiting beliefs, I, I like to call them limiting beliefs for sure, would be that money is like the most important thing. Uh, and if they don't have the money there, if they don't have enough money to, to buy the property, they just don't think that there's a chance. Like, and that's where I came from too. Like my limiting belief was that I didn't have money and that I, I wasn't a handy guy. You know, I'm not a handy person, so there's no way I can buy properties. Um, I, you know, and the truth of the matter is you don't have to have either. Right. So, you know, that's something that I work through with, with my students there is just understanding that you can partner with other people. Like I had for my very first one and, and create like a good win-win between you and, and another partner to go in and actually buy a property. And the first one I find is like 10 times more difficult than the second. And the third one is like a hundred times more easier than the first. So just getting from zero to one is like the biggest accomplishment because trust me when I say like getting that second one after you've already gone through everything once is so much easier and, uh, and just getting through, getting through the process once. Yeah. People get the bug when they buy their first property. They're so excited. They're like, Oh my God, that actually wasn't as bad as I thought. And then they go and buy another one within a really short time frame, and then third and fourth, et cetera. Like the hardest part really is just finding location and creating the team. I think when you have a solid boots on the ground team, like it's, it's really just a matter of finding the deal and then just buy it. It's not that hard. Um, but I'm surprised like that's the biggest challenge because if they had the limiting belief that they couldn't like buy real estate with no money, then why would they sign up for a coaching in the first place? You know what I mean? Like if they didn't think that you could buy real estate, why would they try a course to learn how to buy real estate? I, I think they realize that they, that they can, and it's definitely a possibility. It's just like, I kind of, I used to run track and field and my race was hurdles. So, you know, when, when you're a beginner hurdle runner, and this really ties in here, um, you know, as a very beginner hurdler, you actually look at the very first hurdle and you're like, I need to get over that hurdle. If I can get over the first one, the next nine are so much easier. And the truth is it actually becomes more difficult. And that 10th hurdle feels like it's 10 feet high and you're just trying to get over it. Um, and, and it's tough. Well, I think it's the same as a beginner real estate investor too. Like you're very obsessed around what's the next hurdle in front of you. And for a lot of people, it is the money, but they understand it's possible. They've seen friends or other people do it. Um, so they're willing to kind of work with someone to get them over that first hurdle. But the interesting thing here is that as someone that's a bit more advanced and has gone run the race a few times, just like when you're a hurdler, um, you're not obsessed around the first hurdle. You're really practicing on getting over that 10th one because the 10th one is the make or break hurdle. That's where like you're going to beat the other runners for sure. And and I, I think that's the truth here too. Like in running a real estate investing business is, you know, you have to take it in stages. And sometimes you don't realize that, yeah, property management could actually be way more difficult than raising the money for a property. And I actually believe that to be true sometimes is, you know, people are willing to give you money and mortgages once you can find the really good property in the deal. 
And you also have a really good renovation systems and property management systems, along with like the bookkeeping and whatnot behind the scenes. Um, and there's a lot more than just the money, but I, I think a lot of people at the beginning are focused on just getting that down payment and the renovation and they, they kind of lose out right on, on buying a property even earlier than they could have otherwise. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, you know, my dad's a property manager and from seeing him do his work, I have like absolutely no desire to be in the property management space. You get pulled on both sides, right? The owners complain to you all the time. The tenants complain to you all the time. It's emergencies. Every time they talk to you, it's like, what a headache. Yeah. That's why I'd rather be an investor. <laughs> so much nicer just be an investor. Yeah. It's a complete headache. Yeah. <laughs> well, Riley, thank you so much for your time today. How can people find more about you? Yeah, definitely. I'd love to connect with anyone that's, uh, that's listening and would like to connect and learn more. And uh, even if it's just a quick phone call to, um, to kind of answer some questions that you might have. Um, the website's probably the easiest way to find me. So you can go to www.rileylocal.com. So just my first last name.com. And you can schedule a call there on the website. You can also uh, DM me there on Instagram. So Instagram or Facebook at Riley Local Investor. Yeah. And like I said, I'd love to connect with people and help out however I can. Awesome. Well, Riley, thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate you, know, you going over and telling us how to you know, buy properties, convert them to Airbnb, and especially you know partnering with people to have them come up with the money so you can buy more and more real estate without putting in your own funds into the deal. Super amazing. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, Sean. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.